Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. There are no words to express my sorrow and regret for the pain I have caused others by words and actions. To the people I have hurt, I am truly sorry. As I am writing this, I realize the depth of the damage and disappointment I have left behind at home and at NBC. Some of what is being said about me is untrue or mischaracterized, but there is enough truth in these stories to make me feel embarrassed and ashamed. That was Matt Lauer's uh, former Today Show co-host, Savannah Guthrie, on a statement from Mr. Lauer to uh, everybody out there right now. This has played out largely as we could have expected it to. Uh, largely as we, I think, almost knew that it would, because you don't toss your $25 million a year anchor from one of these networks unless it's really bad. I mean, unless they've they've got them. And look, this is, I consider this to be as, as much a family show as I can make it. I know sometimes I have to talk about jihadists beheading people and, and some pretty intense, serious stuff. I can't really get into the specifics of some of the Matt Lauer allegations and accusations because it's pretty graphic stuff. And I know some of you have uh, young ones listening. But this guy, and I should note, before I go too far down the, the rabbit hole here of the latest sexual harassment and assault and sexual malfeasance, you know, all, all the stuff that's going on here. I'm going to talk to you about the stock market, Trump, taxes. Uh, we'll talk about North Korea. I'm going to talk to you about demography in this country, fertility in this country. It'll be a very interesting discussion on that, I can assure you. Um, so we, we've got a lot to get into here. Maybe we can talk a bit about Bitcoin because there's some things that are, there's some big trends that I see that are worrying me about the economy right now and about the political discussion surrounding it. But first, I mean, you have the, the single biggest story in the country today has to do still with all of this sexual misconduct of one kind or another. Conyers, the congressman who, that's it, Pelosi, uh, a few days ago was saying is an icon. Now they're saying he should step down. Now they're saying he should step down. And there is, I believe, a fifth, count them, five accusers against Al Franken uh, that makes it very hard, I think, for a lot of us to, uh, to give any benefit of any doubt here from what was the first allegation. They were trying really hard, right? Now there are five women. I think the number we've discussed before is once you get to three, 
you could assume there's probably 10 and you might hear from 20. Because these guys were acting in a way that they only could have done if they thought they had impunity and it was an impunity that was granted them by power and by politics. That's what they thought at the time. I, I want to do a quick Freedom Hut, uh, Freedom Hut poll here. Uh, Tyrone, you first. Is Representative Conyers going? He's in the hospital right now. I'm assuming probably having a panic attack or anxiety attack. Is he going to resign? Yes or no? No. No resignation. Producer Amy? Probably not. He'll be forced out. You go no. You think he'll be forced out? Okay. And Al Franken, Tyrone, will he step down? Yes. Yes. Amy? I agree. (laughs) Okay. Wow. You guys think Conyers? Interesting. You think Franken is definitely out. Okay. It's going to be tough for Franken. And that's a Senate seat. Now, there's a uh, there's a Democrat governor in Minnesota. So that's, you know, everyone, you know, it's not like there's a huge transfer of power that occurs here because you're, you're going to have this isn't a situation where you have, a, you know, a, a possible replacement in a in a red state with a, with a Democrat governor. So I mean, you've got Minnesota, by the way, I don't know what's going on. Minnesota has so many of the nicest people I've I used to go camping in Minnesota with my dad growing up. I went to uh uh, Ely, Minnesota, a number of times, and out in the Boundary Waters, and it's amazing, beautiful place. And the people are so nice. But what is with the politics of Minnesota? Darn it! I mean, you're like you're the heartland. You love the outdoors, and yet you vote like a bunch of Marxists. I don't understand what's going on in Minnesota. Maybe I should go visit. Obviously, not all of them, but you know, it's a, it's a blue blue state now. I mean, it's it's gone it's gone heavy blue. Okay, so back to uh, the the Conyers Franken situation and all this other stuff that's going on here. I, I think, and I look, this is just my sense of it, but I think that the Democrats didn't realize what they had uh, unleashed here as a political movement with the zero tolerance rhetoric around sexual harassment and sexual abuse that they've all been adopting in recent weeks. Meaning that n- now. They, they've pushed so hard on this notion and it's so widespread that it is very difficult, even for hypocritical two faced Democrats to walk it back. It's too much even for them, which is saying a lot. And that's why you've got Nancy Pelosi, for example, saying the following. Um, how come you haven't called on him to resign? Well, the, uh, the allegations against Congressman Conyers, as we have learned more since uh, Sunday are serious, disappoint, disappointing, and very credible. It's very sad. Uh, the brave women who came forward are owed justice. Uh, I pray for Congressman Conyers and his family and wish them well. However, Congressman Conyers should resign. You're wondering, I would note, what those accusations against the longest-serving member of Congress, a Democrat icon, a hero to the left, Congressman Conyers, what were those allegations? We heard a bit about it today from Marion Brown, who accepted a settlement for the sexual harassment of Representative Conyers. Here is what she said on TV. He invited me into the hotel and um, he has uh, undressed, you know, down to his underwear. And uh, again, it was the uh, proposition of uh, sexually satisfying him. And um, he asked you to do something sexually. 
Uh, yes. He asked me to satisfy him uh, sexually. He pointed uh, to areas of genital areas of, of his uh, body and asked me to, uh, you know, touch it. And what did you do in that moment? I was a frozen shock and, uh, and I, you know, I didn't know what to do. But one thing, I didn't want to lose my job. I didn't want to upset him. Uh, and I just, uh, and, and then also he asked me to find other people that would satisfy him. So I, I just uh, tried to escape. And I live in, in Chicago. So I just told him I had to, to leave. And A woman's clearly traumatized by this situation that uh, John Conyers, Representative Conyers, put her in. But uh, this is one of these days where we all we all know that it's a pretty safe bet that there's going to there's going to be more. I was telling you that there would be more in the media and there was. And I and you can go back, play the tape, as they say. And I was telling you that D.C. was next. Those of you who are daily listeners to the show know when I mean, I mean, back in like when the Weinstein stuff happened, I was like, you know, D.C., you're going to see some stuff because they got the same dynamic. You have very powerful men. Uh, who are working in environments where they are sometimes looked up to. They are even revered by some of their employees. And their employees are, look, I spent time around Capitol Hill. I lived in D.C. for years. A lot of Capitol Hill staffers are underpaid, overworked, and very replaceable. Just like the situation in media for a lot of people who are staffers on shows or working in newsrooms. Um, and that creates a, a toxic dynamic with uh, a predator. He just sees the opportunity and, and wants to exploit. Um, so you have Franken, five accusers, Conyers, Pelosi saying he should step down, and Matt Lauer. Uh, I, I want to dig a little deeper into the Matt Lauer situation. I know we talked about it at some length yesterday, but um, before I get into where I, what I'm thinking about taxes and, you know, this is, they cover taxes so much on TV and I'm, is this, are people really riveted by this? It's like the Super Bowl here with the taxes. I, I'm, I think it'll be a good thing. I just don't know if it makes the most fascinating viewing. Um, but let's say that uh, we'll, we'll finish up our discussion here about Lauer and, then we'll move on to some some policy issues, which I would like to talk to you about. But what do you think? I asked Amy. I asked Tyrone here in the Freedom Hunt. Do you think that Conyers will step down? Do you think that Franken will be forced to step down? And what message will that send to other politicians who we know, we know have skeletons in their closet? You know, Somewhere right now, Bill Clinton's sitting around. He's like, Told you I wasn't the only one. I, I told you there are all kinds of, you know, shenanigans. I'm telling you Capitol Hill's full of shenanigans. Uh, we will see. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Be right back. Our sources say it wasn't even considered a secret. It was known by many employees at the Today Show, including some employees that have gone on television and said, Publicly, we had no idea. According to our reporting, some of these, some of the other personalities and on-air personalities were aware of these allegations. What's NBC going to do? I think they have a trust problem. 
how can they go forward and say we're, we're cracking down on sexual harassment if people who work there knew that there was knowledge of this situation and of this behavior. We've been in communication with, with more victims and more women will be coming forward to, to tell their story. We're confident of that. Your reporting continues. Yes, it does. The highest paid anchor on news television was a serial predator, everybody. Preying on women who worked for him. And as you just heard from that reporter, even little old me, little old Buck, who lives in New York and has some connections to some people in the media business and knows some folks here and there, you can go back and check my Twitter feed. As soon as the Lauer story broke and, and Savannah Guthrie went on TV, and, uh, I'm just so heartbroken about Lauer. I was like, I'm not going to call people out by name. You can make your own judgments about that. But people are straight up lying about Matt Lauer and what they knew about him. Straight up lying. Powerful people. And, you know, just please, for, for the, you know, the, for the imbeciles out there, when I say, when I say that, you know, that, that people are, um, that, that people are keeping it to themselves, I'm not talking about the victims, obviously. We understand why victims don't come forward. When I'm calling people out for not speaking out, I'm talking about the multi-million dollar co-hosts. I'm talking about the multi-millionaire senior producer or executive producer or head of the network or the people who are supposed to be protecting the young women who are making like 25 grand a year to work as a page or an assistant producer or whatever on these shows. Those are the ones that I'm calling out. And a lot of the fear and anxiety that you're seeing from people over on the Today Show is that, you know, their, their whole brand is supposed to, it's, by the way, it's all such a facade, okay? They're a bunch of liberals sitting on a couch, desperately trying to get you to like them. I will say I like Al Roker. That I will say. So Al Roker, Ty's giving me a high five. Al Roker is cool. I like Al Roker. But the rest of them, it's, oh, like me, like me, like me. It's like me television. You're not learning anything from them. You know, it's just the whole thing is kind of an outdated model in my mind, kind of desperate. You know, it's like, oh, look at me. I'm interviewing the president one moment. The next minute I'm making a souffle. Everybody likes me. And we're kind of apolitical here. We just want everyone to like us. But we're really Democrats. Well, that's kind of beside the point for the moment. It's coming out now. There are more women. We haven't even heard the worst yet. I mean, I, I would go into the details, but some of the stuff is like from a rated X movie. I can't even talk about it on the air. I mean, this guy's making thirty, uh, twenty-five million dollars a year. You think people don't know? I think about your own life, your own workplace, your own office. You think some guy could be doing what the, what this guy was doing, and people wouldn't know? Come on! How stupid do they really think we are? And NBC, I also brought this up yesterday, as soon as this broke, NBC tried to squash the Weinstein story, and now we find out about their biggest star. Oh, I should note, do you think that it's not just the executives in charge at NBC now, some of them clearly knew, there might be some previous NBC executives who knew about this. One or two come to mind. But it was a cash cow, this whole Today Show thing. So they sold out their principles. The swamp that is getting claimed this year is indeed the media, my friends. That's the one that's first, has been first on the chopping block. 
And they are so sanctimonious, and they get so uh, up in our faces about how, you know, oh, we're just journalists, and why don't you believe us? And, you know, Trump is, Trump is destroying the First Amendment and all. You know, get out the world's smallest violin for these overpaid babies. And there's just no ethics, no integrity. And it's so disappointing. And I really hope, you know, now that we live in a world where, it, it, you, where there are choices, choices for how you get your information, choices for how you get your entertainment. You know, we, we don't have to accept what is force-fed to us by the leftist, progressive elites that are just holding on for, for dear life at these legacy networks because it gives them an advantage over the competition. But, you know, you have other options. You don't have to support someone who's scummy in his personal life. You don't have to accept the the bullcrap that's being peddled your way all the time. I think this is part of the this is part of the information revolution that is happening now. You know all all this the the, the facade uh, Hollywood is is just putrid. It is rancid. There's no honor. There's no integrity. I mean, I say this to you. A lot of the men in the audience right now. You know, we've got a a lot of ladies listening too. But just if I could speak to the men in the audience for a second. If you were in an office and you heard some of the stuff that this guy Lauer was pulling, I'm sorry, but I just, I know you would say something. I know you'd speak up. If you saw a woman being mistreated the way some of these women who have come out against various figures have been mistreated, I know you'd say something. Because we still believe in honor and integrity. On the right, we at least try. We're not perfect, but we try. The left has abandoned it entirely. And they don't even, you know, we have our failures and we have our, look, we have our disappointments on the right, too, in this area. I am not discounting that. I am well aware of it. Some people, professionally, at least, I don't hold any of these news folks up as, uh, as like, heroes or anything. I never, I, I certainly don't now, but I, I didn't even before, right? It's just, they're people doing a job. Uh, but we at least try. You know, I think about... If it had been passed along to me, you know, if I were in a position at NBC, if I were a host on a seven-figure contract and I knew that one of the other guys was being abusive to female staff in this way, man to man, I'd call, I'd talk to him about it. I'd call him out. I would do something about it. And, and that that somehow is lost in all these discussions about how the, the, there are people. I, look, I, I, we're not talking about victims here, and I'm not talking about you know, uh, hourly employees that work for these organizations that need the paycheck and everything. But there are people there, the head of the news division, the head of the network, other hosts with a lot of money and a lot of clout, producers that have a lot of connections. They could have done something. And they did nothing. In fact, what we're finding out is what I told you yesterday. And you know it. You listen to the show. You can go back and play it back. They're lying. They're lying to you. NBC... NBC News is a cesspool, everybody. And they put out that MSNBC stuff and like, oh, the Republican war on women. They're the ones who are actually waging a covert war on women. Matt Lauer to his co-host. Keep bending over like that. It is a nice view.
But yeah, nobody knew. Nobody knew. No, not 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 a word from anybody about anything with this guy. The media is so full of frauds, everybody. And I was warning you about it yesterday. But you know, the the more time you spend around them, and and also some really great and very admirable people. And and I I actually the people that I know in media who are really devoted to the work and are ethical and are uh, contributing and love their country and love their families and, and do the right thing. I respect them even more being in media because I know there are so many others who are just, they're snakes. They are snakes, unethical, dishonest, self-loving and self-loathing at the same time. I mean, that's one of the primary uh, characteristic groups that you find of these uh, media people. You know, a lot of them have been poorly treated along the way, and then they get to a place where they feel like they can treat others poorly, and they just can't help themselves. So, I should note, uh, this is, now we've got, this is reporting on the Hill right now. I just saw this. Bette Midler says, quote, Geraldo Rivera needs to apologize for drugging and groping me, end quote. I, I just saw that headline. I don't even, I don't know what that is. I mean, I don't know what to say about that other than that's another thing that's out there right now. All right, lines are lit. Let's get into it for a moment here. Uh, Phil in New Hampshire. What's up, Phil? Hey, Buck. Good, good evening. Good evening. Uh, I, I'd just like to say that that wasn't what I was going to talk about, but uh, you, you, I think you hit the nail on the head when you're you're talking to your audience and and saying, you know, I I, I think this might be what you think uh, about how you would react in a certain situation. That you know, conservatives tend to not run cover for something that they see as as disgusting and deplorable and, and dangerous. And Democrats and and the left, it seems, will absolutely if it suits them run cover for something that they'll then turn around and say, Hey, in, in looking back, that was terrible. Um, so when you said that it rung true and it reminded me of me, a lot of my friends, um, are you, are you typing you know, while you're talking? We're hearing some, I'm just wondering what's going on there. Are you, are you etching? It sounds like you might be etching something. Etching. No, I, it could be our connection. And huh. I was maybe leaning, leaning back too far. I was like, are, do, you, do you work I, with granite? You know, are you carving, are you carving your initials into something? That's kind of what it sounded like. But okay. But anyway, Phil, yeah, no, I, well, I well, agree with you. The left is uh, willing to play. They've been playing zero sum politics for a long time. I do blame the Clintons. I, I think that the I, Clintons you know, was that, when this, this was, stuff. If, Go ahead. Boy, if I can be bad enough to interrupt you. It reminded me of your piece on the Clintons where my son and I laughed through the entire piece. Um, you, you were on fire on that one. And, uh, but you're, I mean, dude, you're the guy who has, through all the times that I've seen you as you've come up, you're constantly reminding people, this is your opinion, and this is where it comes from, and here's the basis for how you draw your facts. And And it's an honest way of making a living. And so, you know, throwing you in with the rest of them. And, and I saw you on Kennedy and you were awesome on that one. You're one of the very few people that's caused her to stop talking and uh, maybe took back a couple things. She said, she said, um, but the, the whole thing has been really great to watch. It's really been great to be a part of. I'm not a member of the, you know, the first group, 
on uh, OSS. People have been saying OSS is getting bigger all the time, which I appreciate. Hey, if people want to be members of it, they can. (laughs) Phil Shields, hi, man. Thank you very much. It did. I was here. It it sounded like he was uh, like there was a. I can't even explain, you know, like like he was writing with an ancient Roman writing implement or something on a chalkboard. That's what it's kind of sounded like there. I, I just couldn't really take it. But I appreciate you calling in Phil from Phil to Gil. Listening on the iHeart app in Philly. What's up, Gil? Shields high, Buck. Shields high. Listen, oh, is it is it Jill or Gil? A, it's Gil, like a fish. Okay, good. I want to let you know I'm um, a real phalanx member of the Freedom Hut. I uh, subscribe to iHeart Radio just so I can get you. I Thank download you. all the podcasts. I've listened to the Lepento thing so many times. Anyway, that's not my point, but you make me proud to be a conservative and you give me faith. Thank anyway, you very much. The, my, I have three points to pay, make. Point number one is this woman describes being in Charlie's apartment uh, or hotel room like, oh, that's just like being in the lobby or it's like being at the post office or the office. What the hell? When a woman, you say, hey. Wait, wait, just just so everyone's clear what you're talking about, you're referring to the Conyers accuser, Congressman Conyers accuser, Marion Brown, right? Right, right. I said wrangle, I meant Conyers. I am sorry. But the point is, Conyers, uh, these women talk like, oh, well, we just happened to be in his hotel room. I'm sorry. If you say to a woman, hey, come on up to the hotel room, what the heck are you doing there in the first place? Well, Gil, I can right? tell you I can tell you that when, you know, especially if I, I and I actually I don't know the specifics of where they were with this, but, you know, if you work for a congressman and he has to travel a lot for the job, you're going to have professional meetings in the, you know, in the hotel room I'm assuming that there was a, you know, it might be a suite. There's sort of a sitting area or something. I, but I think you're, I think you're being a little naive and giving them the benefit of the doubt when we don't have to. My second point would be that uh, the holy hell! I'm an engineer. I'm a professional in the office. You know how guys talk to each other. We have all kinds of expressions we use all the time. And I saw where uh, one of the congresswomen was all upset because she said to some other congressman, what do I have to do to pass this bill? And his reply was, well, do you have your knee pads? Okay. And, and oh, my gosh, that's, guys say stuff like that to each other all the time. Well, look, the, hold on, but hold on a second, Gil. I mean, there's there's comments that we can discuss whether or not they're entirely appropriate or not. But overwhelmingly, what we are in this whole sexual misconduct moment in which the country finds itself, we're talking about groping, grabbing, assault, well, in some but, cases, rape, right? I mean, I, I haven't seen anyone uh, that, have a case, even, even with Al Franken, about, no one's saying Al Franken just told a dirty joke. They're saying Al Franken was grabbing women's private areas on, you know, five different people or trying to stick his tongue down their throat. Right. So, I mean, I I understand that there's concern that this is going to get weaponized. I've been saying it a lot. I see my uh, my old colleague, Matt Walsh, over the Daily Wire has been raising the alarm about this, too. I'm aware of that, but we're not talking about comments yet. I mean, once it turns into comments, uh, then I'll be having that conversation. 
I appreciate you calling yeah, in, Gil. Shields high, and thank you. we got to get to uh, another call here in just a moment. But just on the notion of commentary versus action or comments versus action, the big, annoying, uh, false equivalency that was trotted out there by the left media, I think it was last week, and by a few independents and former Republicans who go on TV just to make clowns of themselves for a paycheck, uh, was that the real problem started with sexual harassment when the country didn't believe Anita Hill when it came to Clarence Thomas. And they're trying to say that that either set the groundwork for the Clinton hyper-politicization later or that it created a precedent or whatever. Thomas, Justice Thomas made one or two jokes that one he denied making and two weren't weren't like a big deal didn't grab anyone didn't assault anyone didn't do anything didn't demand sex didn't demand sexual favors nothing bill clinton was accused of of groping grabbing sexual assault forcible rape i mean bill clinton was accused of on record credibly Stuff that sends non-Clintons to prison for a long time. This has become something of a theme on this show. There's the rules that most people live by, and then there's the rules that the Clintons live by. And what a normal dude or dudette could get sent to federal penitentiary for, or nasty state penitentiary, uh, the Clintons somehow escape punishment entirely. I, I really do believe this. I think the Clinton. I think the unholy alliance between the Clintons and the mainstream media is what broke contemporary politics in this country. It is what caused the, granted, the polarization that is happening and continue to happen right now. Um, it, it wasn't Bill Clinton's policies. It was his conduct and the media's cover for it. Bill Clinton was kind of a third-way centrist e Democrat on some things, not on everything, but on some things. But his personal conduct was deplorable, and they – I feel like that word now can never – I just that's a, I just like to use words. That word now obviously has a Trumpian connotation, but uh, – Sandy in Michigan, good to have you. Are you there? Yes, Sandy. You're on air. How are you doing? Okay. Yeah, I grew up in Detroit. I was about nine years old when uh, Conyers got into Congress. And he's been there ever since. It's unbelievable. He's disgusting. And all of the politicians in Detroit have basically been like that. You look at our Detroit mayors. I mean, one's in jail in Texas right now. And he deserves to be. And I hope he never gets out. But um, also, do you remember um, Gloria Aldred with that woman... Who was dabbing her eyes and nose and crying? I don't know which one. Gloria Allred's represented a lot of women yeah, who were well, upset. The one who was 14 with Judge Roy Moore. Oh. Remember, she was dabbing her eyes in that. There were no I, I tears. Think, I think I'm being told that, uh, that Allred was with the one who was 16 at the time, not 14. But go ahead, Sandy. Right. Well, she was working as a waitress, and he signed her yearbook, supposedly. Okay, yeah. Yeah, you're right. And um, I never saw any tears. I never saw her nose drip. She was dabbing him so lightly, like, I mean. What are you trying to tell me, Sandy? It was phony. Oh, you think it was fake? Okay. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <sighs> I don't know if it happened, but she was faking those tears. Well, we will see. The people of Alabama are going to get a chance to vote on whether they think they were fake or not. Seems pretty compelling to me. But, Sandy, I appreciate you calling in, and uh, thank you very much for your time tonight on the show. All right, team, we are going to, uh, well, we can take some calls in the next hour, too, of course, if you're on hold, because we've got a lot of calls on hold right now. Uh, we will get to you when we can. I want to talk about tax reform. Uh, there are some early reports of problems. in the. T- I think that this is just kind of, you know, you got to make a horse race of this whole thing. So no matter what's going on on Capitol Hill right now, you're going to get reports of, oh, you know, there's, there's trouble, turbulent waters. I can write the headlines right now. Yeah. Dissent among the ranks of Senate Republicans, whatever it is. So we will see. Um, we'll talk a bit about taxes. And I'm, I'm trying to be less skeptical on how good this tax package is. Everybody I know, everybody I know who follows it really closely admits to me that, I mean, everyone who's uh, either a media or a wonk or one of those folks, it's not great. I mean, it's good, but it's not great. I think it's kind of more like okay, but I'm persuadable. We'll be right back. Team, I meant to speak to you earlier about this story that the New York Times ran last weekend. I forget the exact title. It was something like the, you know, the white supremacist next door or something like that. It was something along, more or less that was the title. And it was this guy in Ohio and the, the, the approach the New York Times took, and they did this to make it more ominous and, and to make it a more effective way to tell the story was to just be like, yeah, Here's this guy, you know, he he shops at stores and he's got a wife and he watches, you know, TV and and just happens to think that Hitler had some really good ideas and that white nationalism or, or, or white fascism or what, whatever it is. I mean, that I, you get the idea, right? The neo-Nazism is a good thing. No, that's just his political belief system. That was what the Times was saying. The idea being that here is a view of what a future where white nationalism is a more widespread phenomenon, you would have individuals who are not necessarily skinheads with uh, swastikas tattooed in their faces and everything else, right? This is why they were telling the story. An interesting um, quick side note to this or or something that happened right after the story was that the left was really angry at the times because they said that they were normalizing white supremacy. Which I should note, they weren't trying to normalize it. They were trying to show that somebody who is ostensibly engaged in normal day to day activities in this country could hold white supremacist views. In fact, they're trying to make it seem like, you know, don't think it's just the guys walking around who are are wearing, uh, you know, or or, or are carrying swastika flags and and yelling blood and soil and stuff that believe this. Right? That, That was the. So they're doing it for effect. They got a lot of pushback from the left for not. And, and I should note that they were writing a profile of the guy. That's now the expectation of Times readers, though, is that they have to say this Nazi, which is a disgusting ideology that we all reject and is based on on lies and genocide. And I mean, the, the Times I give them some credit. They're assuming that everybody who's reading the Times doesn't need to be told that because we all know that. And they're, they approach this story about the white supremacist next door in Ohio, in effect, to, to make it seem like it's 
maybe a more widespread problem than people realize because the subject of the profile could seem uh, his name is Tony uh, Hoveter could seem normal in a day to day sense. Right. That he's not walking around, uh, you know, dressed like a, a, a Waffen SS guy or something. I mean, that that's the, that was the point of the piece. So they got pushback. And I should just note that one part of this that doesn't get any attention, no surprise, is that, OK, this profile written by The New York Times of the white supremacist next door, New York Times trying to make the case that, see, this is this is a thing that's happening more and more across the country. They're not trying to normalize him. They were trying to actually raise the alarm about how this is infiltrating normal American communities in some ways. Right. But guess what? This guy's gotten fired now and he has had to leave his home for, quote, safety reasons. Now, I'm not shedding any tears for the guy who's saying that he's a a adherent of Hitler and, you know, he's an idiot and he's got a terrible, destructive ideology. But I think it's interesting that the follow-up to the story, the story's supposed to be, see, this guy's a neo-Nazi and he's just, you know, just another American. And isn't that, doesn't that tell us about how terrible Trump's America has become that this? No. In fact, this guy gets death threats and is kicked out of his home because everybody's like, sorry, no Nazi stuff here. See you later. So in a sense, it's a good news story, right? But you don't hear that part of it. You don't hear that he's expelled or has to leave his home and that he's fired from his job and all this other stuff. Because Nazism is still rejected by societies. I just, there's no, there's no, not much follow-up from the left on that one because they're all, oh, it's all being normalized. No, it's not normal at all. Welcome back, team. Thank you for being here. Great to have you. We're going to talk taxes. Let's talk taxes. Fuck. Talk. Taxes. Uh, we'll get into that in a second. But first, Eric in New York has been patiently waiting. Uh, he's on the iHeart app, listening that way. Hey, what's up, Eric? Hey, Buck. Shield side. Shield Thanks side. for taking my call. Thank you. Hey, I was just uh, curious. Uh, I just want your opinion on the whole fact of with uh, Kirsten Gillibrand and Chuck Schumer. Um, I'm in upstate New York, and uh, why haven't they stepped in with this whole Matt Lauer thing, you know, and uh, they're like and Pelosi's game or something like that. I'm not sure, but uh, I just wanted to hear your opinion, see what you think about well, why sure. aren't why aren't they just jumping in and saying something? Yeah, you mean Franken, right? Because I mean, them weighing in a Lauer's toast. I don't think they have to weigh in a Lauer, but Franken they haven't weighed in on, or they won't weigh in on. Uh, and, and so I'm assuming you meant. Frank and Eric, or no? Well, all of this. Oh, all of it. Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's fine, too. So, because the, the, the bigger issue is Kirsten, the Kirsten, Kristen, it's impossible, man. I can never, oh, I have whatever. friends named Kirsten, I have friends named Kristen, uh, but Kirsten, I think, uh, Gillibrand, was saying how Bill Clinton should have stepped down uh, after the Monica Lewinsky. She said that like a few weeks ago, maybe a week or two ago. And now we have Franken with five accusers, and she won't say anything about that. The answer to your question, Eric, is that it's just all posturing, right? It's virtue signaling from the left on much of this, and or for many people on the left. Look, I think some of them do take it seriously. Some of them do want heads to roll, so to speak. Uh, but with Gillibrand or Gillibrand, uh, she's being quiet on the whole Franken thing. Because I, I think I think one of the issues with the Conyers Franken 
step down situation is that they must know some they must know there are other Democrats. And if you set a precedent where Franken and Conyers have to step down and you don't fight at least a little bit and make it a little harder, there's going to be there's going to be others. There's going to be others. Well, I certainly hope so. I just wanted to hear your opinion. Thank yeah, I appreciate you. it. Eric, Shield Time. Thank- Where are you calling him from New York? What- oh, we lost him. All right, whatever. I was just wondering. It's all right. I- New York's the great the great state of state that I'm in right now. Um, any state with people that listens to this show is, is great, of course. Uh, let's get into taxes. Woo! Tax time. Uh, here's my, you know, I've continued to, think about this and you know cause some of you were, were pushing back on my I, I just like to pump the brakes a little bit on the on the cheerleading for the GOP on this issue I understand I'm trying to root for them too this would be the first the first thing we could all say yay about that the GOP would have pulled off but I believe it is certainly my duty as somebody who spends all day reading and researching and trying to know as much as he can about the various subject matter that is, well, a part of the news cycle, but specifically policy stuff coming out of D.C., that I, I like to be skeptical. And I think that conservatives have recently gotten a bit swept, or some conservatives, some of them are way too skeptical, uh, but have gotten swept up in a, in a little bit of a an enthusiasm that is overtaking where the facts should lead them on this tax package. I, I just, and I, you can try to pull apart all the, it, it's three or two or 300 pages long. So there's a lot of stuff going on in here. And I just try to look at this from the level of what can we know based on what is being done right now? Um, just a quick note. They, this is a, a breaking news issue, but they will have a verdict. So this is a, this is an aside, everybody. They ha- will have a verdict in the Kate Steinle murder trial in moments. So we will bring that to you live as soon as we know. I, I, I mean, my assumption is that it will be a guilty verdict. I don't know on what counts or what charges specifically. But as soon as we know, we will bring that to you because there's a lot of uh, well, people want to know how that case turned out. Back to the taxes, though. The focus on corporate for for Trumpism to be a populist movement. Let let's just go back to and call it Trumpist first principles or or the origins the origins of Trumpism. Sounds like I'm writing a really boring PhD dissertation on the 2016 election, but the origins of Trumpism. It's supposed to be about the forgotten men and women of this country it's supposed to be about restoring American greatness via a focus on our economic issues, our secure borders and American prosperity before concerns about globalism and, and everything else. That is the that is the the underlying foundation of the Trump movement. And I understand we're just in year one and we could be looking at eight. You can let that let that sit for a moment. Yeah, that's right. It could be eight years. Uh, I don't know what Democrats are going to do. They're going to have to. They're going to have to get some kind of massive media group therapy going or something because they're not going to be able to handle eight years of Trump. But let's say that it goes on for eight. Oh, put aside that, that it might go on for eight years. We're only at year one. I understand that. 
but there's not a single legislative achievement that Congress can point to so far. This thing still may be uh, may run aground. The whole tax reform bill may not happen. But I am uncomfortable with the fact that the primary change in the tax code that will occur is for corporations and not for individuals. I just I I know that we take what we can get and you know but people will tell me oh buck but if we change individual rates it would hurt, you know that would add too much to the deficit it, it would make the debt get even bigger than it's already going to be getting and I'm like well okay but do we care about the debt or not the debt's 20 trillion dollars everyone if I had told you the debt was 20 trillion would be 20 trillion dollars 10 years ago you'd be like well yeah uh, I better be hoarding fresh water and ammunition. I know a lot of you are like, Buck, I'm hoarding ammunition anyway. I know, but that's for target practice. Uh, the reality is that the debt has not been part of this discussion really at all. And there are pressures that come from continuing to put all these obligations on America's national credit card that affect the rest of the economy. We're going to talk about prosperity and growth and all these good things. Payments on the debt are going to be getting bigger. The simple function of math, interest, that's a problem. That will continue to be a problem. And all these budget projections they're giving us of what's gonna, what this is going to look like in 2027, what's this going to look like in you know 2052, what's this going mean, to... A lot of that is noise. A lot of that is noise. And I I think that, and this is true of Republicans too, but there is a little bit of hiding in the complexity that's going on right now. Do you really have a sense? And I know that it's part of my job to make sure that everyone listening does have a a good sense of what's going on with policy. But uh, off the top of your head, okay, the corporate tax rate's going down. But what else is this doing? Uh, some of you are like, "Well, Buck, we're going to be uh, doubling the uh, doubling the in, you know individual deduction." And okay, there's some things. Why is the tax bill hundreds of pages long? There's a lot that's in there that we do not know about. There's a lot that isn't getting talked about, and the simplification of rates should be something that's very straightforward. We should know exactly what's going to happen here with regard to individual taxpayers, because who's really hurting? We've heard a lot from Republicans about how corporations in America, oh, they have to offshore. Oh, they they have to uh, you know put their put their money overseas. OK, well, you know, if they're investing in factories over, I could play this game, too. People will say, well, they'll bring the money back and they'll invest it in in factories here. and That'll be more jobs. Well, but then there's the other side of it is that if there are factories overseas that are making goods more cheaply, guess what? You can buy them more cheaply here. So it's just not as clear cut as a lot of Republicans are making it. A lot of members of Congress trying to make it sound like. And there's a lot of horse trading going on right now. And we just need to maintain a degree of skepticism. That's all I'm trying to say. I don't want you all to be disappointed. When And I would also note that some of the estimates I've seen about how much this is going to ha- uh, help middle class taxpayers, like a couple of hundred bucks. I don't care where you are in the country. I don't care what your financial situation is. A couple of hundred bucks additional back at tax time 
is not a game changer. It is. What? How much is it, Tyrone? Oh, Huckabee Sanders had to. Thank you, Tyrone. Huckabee. I didn't even know we had this. Play it, please. What I can tell you is what I have said every single day that we've been part of this process. The president laid out his priorities. We feel like the plans as of right now from the House and Senate meet those priorities of cutting taxes for the middle class, simplifying the tax code, bringing business back home. Those have been the big focus of the administration. And those are going to be the things we continue to fight for as we go through this tax policy. Nonpartisan. Their analysis seems to say middle class taxes would actually go up in a lot of cases. There are several studies that say the opposite. That would contradict that? Yeah, and and there have been several studies that say that this is a good thing for the middle class. I saw one just yesterday. We'll send it to you after the briefing concludes. Um, But again, we're going to continue fighting for this and making sure that the middle class does receive tax cuts that they deserve and frankly that they need. And we think that we're making a lot of progress on this front and we think that we're going to get it done by the end of the year okay so did you get any specifics there on how it's going to help the middle class because i didn't did you get any specifics on how you're going to be paying less in taxes from that discussion because i didn't hear them why is it so complicated why are we not being told exactly how it will be better for the middle class and I, i as i always say i don't like this notion of the middle class just People that are earning a living, the earning class, households that are trying to pay their bills. How will it make it better for them? Okay, maybe hiring will improve when there's this windfall of cash that comes into the economy from overseas. That'll take a while, by the way. Anybody that really knows what they're talking about is like, you know, that that takes a bit before it hits and you will feel it uh, in the economy. And it's a very big country. (laughs) So, you know, this may not... It may not be like, oh, all of a sudden wages in my area are up so much. Uh, but why can't she say that middle class, you know, the, the, the tax rate for people making 50 to 100K, let's say, which roughly corresponds to what I think is middle class and a lot of, although that's a whole other discussion. What qualifies as middle class? People use the term all the time because of obvious, uh, the obvious advantage of wanting to appeal to the majority of americans but you know the average american household is making somewhere in the in the neighborhood of 40 some odd thousand dollars a year right that's average it means that a good portion of people are making a good number of households half of households are making less than that and of those who are making i think below in the 20s you're not paying any federal taxes of any any federal income taxes at least of any kind so for those who are paying taxes and who could use some relief what is the relief why can't i know the number why am I sitting here? Well, part of it is that they're still figuring this out, right? We're all supposed to celebrate, you know, we're supposed to celebrate a bill that we don't really even know what's in it yet. You know, you're noticing that. A lot of enthusiasm. And the only thing we're sure about, the only thing we're sure about in this whole situation is the corporate tax cut. We know what those numbers are. We know that's at the top of this. Everything else is so secondary. I just don't trust that conceptually that bothers me and that the trump movement is supposed to be about helping working men and women but we are going to be first and foremost focusing on corporations why can't we do both i'm I'm not saying don't help corporations fine i know it'll help small businesses i know it will be good and i'd rather i always would rather have private citizens have their cash in the government although keep in mind everybody also wants to keep their entitlement goodies 
that part of the conservative movement that used to stand around and be like, hey, yeah, we need lower tax cuts, but we also need to talk about cutting spending. Because we do. Because that's the response. You're not hearing about any of that, are you? That's gone away. This is unsettling. This is problematic. And it's not popular to talk about right now. I know there's probably people who are like, oh, I don't want to hear this. I want to go on a radio show where he's like, yeah, it's going to be amazing. We're going to just be like, the economy's going to grow at 8%. Because, you know, just unfortunately being a, uh, a, a parrot for the positive viewpoint in all things with the, uh, with the Republican Party is right now very effective. It is profitable. But I look at this and I say, meh. We'll see. We'll see. Do you think I'm wrong, by the way? I, I really mean that. If you think I'm wrong, let me know. 844-900-2825. You know, I think this tax package, from what I'm seeing, you know, I give it like a B. It's not an F. It's not a C. I give it like a B. It really could have been much bigger. We have the House. We have the Senate. We have the White House. This is the best we can do? And we might not even get this done. I'm just saying. I know. I know. I'm in Eeyore mode today. We'll be right back. He said he would pay more, his wealthy friends would pay more. So what was he referring to? Well, like I just said, I believe his reference was to a lot of the deductions that may no longer exist uh, that are in the current policy right now. Again, um, we'll have to see what the final piece of legislation looks like. Our focus as an administration uh, has been to focus on middle class tax cuts. That's why I think the president uh, doesn't care whether or not he gets a tax cut or not. But his focus is on making sure that the middle class and middle class families get those tax cuts, that we simplify the process, and that we bring companies back home so that they can invest here. Okay, so focus, that was another Sarah Huckabee Sanders there, uh, focus on the middle class tax cuts. What are they? I understand the bill's not done yet, but we don't know. What's the, t- I mean, they're going to, what, they're going to double, uh, maybe they'll double a the child tax credit. I mean, there's some things they've talked about, but we don't know. I think the focus is on the corporate tax cut, everybody. Can we just be honest about this? The focus is on the corporate tax cut. So there's that. Uh, I know there's not a lot of specificity in part because they don't have a final bill, but I'm, I'm like I say, I'm keeping it real. Art in West Virginia on WWVA. Art, what do you think about all this? Oh, well, um, I think quite a bit about it, but uh, the main thing I call about is I... I hear you, uh, well, not you particularly, but I hear them talking about how are we going to pay for this. And every tax cut that comes along since Reagan that they've tried for, their their first question is how are we going to pay for it? Reagan knew that if we got to tax cuts, they would pay for themselves. Because the economy went through the roof, the income to the government tripled. So that's the way they're paid for. I I don't understand why they keep going on. Well, it's the Democrats normally that do that, but... Uh, why do they keep going on with that, and why does why do people still believe stuff like that? Well, I, I would just want to know, Art, why why don't we why can't the uh, Trump administration then say, as, I mean, taking what you're telling me and just running with it, why can't the middle class have a twenty percent across the board cut in their taxes? There'll be a ton of growth, so why not? Exactly. Okay, well, okay, but so. then why not? Right? I mean, why am I yeah. being told that you know there's something going on here? The focus is on the corporate tax cuts. And they keep talking about the middle class, but I don't hear any anything really ironclad or specific about how people who, you know, if you're listening to this show and you make, you know, 35 or 40, 45 grand a year, 
How is this going to help you? They can talk a lot about balance sheets and hiring and growth, but the answer is, I don't know how it's going to help you yet. Well, I can tell you what, how it will help us some. And that's the fact that uh, when the economy grows like that, prices go down, volume goes up, saves people money. So they have more spending money in, in their hand because of the fact that things are cheaper. And it, it happens every time. Let the market control it. And when they try to say that the government can control it, well, they're wrong. They've been wrong every time, and yet they still say that, particularly the Democrats. The market will control it. And if the, if the prices go down and the, the economy goes up, it pays for everything, and people also get a tax break because if they're paying a dollar and a half per loaf of bread and it ends up after, they, after all this is done and the, the tax break to the corporations and what have you, which corporates don't, corporations don't pay taxes anyway, but if it ends up with that and the price of that loaf of bread goes from a buck and a half to a buck and a quarter or a buck and a dime, then people have gotten a tax cut. I don't understand why they can't see that. Well, I, I come back to and Art, I appreciate your, your thoughtfulness and your passion, but I come back to, okay, so if it's just as simple as cut taxes and there's a lot of growth and everything is great, why are we talking about a flat tax? I, what, what am I missing? I'd love to pay 10%. I don't pay 10% now. What, what, so if, if, it is, if it is so obvious, and I'm, I'm being led to believe here by not just by our last caller there, but by many others who have emailed me, that taxes mean explosive growth, Reagan, America, it's awesome. Okay, how about some individual tax relief? Why is it just on the corporations, everybody? I'm asking the question because it's important, and I'm not getting very good answers. I'm not saying don't do the corporate tax cut. I'm just saying that's the only one I'm sure is going to happen. Bothers me a little bit. You know, I could come here and tell you that everything's awesome, but I cannot tell a lie to you, Team Buck. I'll be right back. I'm old enough to remember when the biggest political movement in the country full of constitutional conservatives was obsessed and rightfully so obsessed with the looming disaster of a national debt that was out of control it was called the tea party it wasn't that long ago i remember that why do we not hear anything about it anymore why does it not matter uh, why are we being led to believe that everything is fine? Look, I understand the stock market's all-time high today for the Dow Jones, right? Woo! Bitcoin, like, crossed 10,000 recently. You know, when your great aunt Ethel is like, I would like to buy some Bitcoin. I've heard it's amazing. Maybe time to think about what's really going on with the economy, you know? When Ann Ethel, who doesn't own a share of stock, is like, I, I want this Bitcoin thing. You know, it's time for you to think about how, okay, uh, maybe there's a bubble here. Maybe there's going to be a reset. I, it's not, you know, look, it's not popular to say, no, I understand. It's, it's more fun to go with the flow right now and be like, yeah, tax cuts, growth, Reagan, <laughs> Reagan. Um, and I hope that's true, and I hope I'm wrong, but... And I just checked with Tyrone in the break. We're talking about this, you know, from from thirty seven thousand to ninety thousand. A lot of you, if you're, uh, if you're, you know, if you're, let's say you're a state trooper. A lot of states with overtime, you know, you're making. I mean, it depends. I don't know. In New York, with you know, state troopers are making six figures. 
Uh, but in a lot of places, you know, you're 80, 90 grand with overtime. That's not unusual. Uh, maybe, maybe 50 or 60 depends on your, you know, cost of living in your state. But you're paying 25% federal income tax on that, my friends. That's a lot. Why am I not being told it's dropping down to, to 15? Tax cuts are great. They create growth. Why aren't we allowed to keep more of our money? I'm just, I'm trying to, you know, war game this out a little bit beyond, yay, Republicans. You know I want the Republicans to succeed. That's why I'm having this conversation with you. Because I care about them. I criticize because I care. Because <laughs> I care about them actually doing the right thing. And I care about all of us being in a better economic position because of it. $20 trillion in debt, everybody. And every year now, $500, $500 billion. Um, Crazy. Crazy. Patty in Mississippi. Listen on the iHeart app. What's up, Patty? I'm good. Um, I think the the problem with this is that you just mentioned the $20 trillion in debt. I think they have spent this into oblivion, and they are so dependent on that money. The small business is the engine of the United States, so they cannot afford to wait for the benefits of this tax cut to kick in to, to create all that growth. They are so precariously on the edge you know, of just the whole thing blowing up. And, and you, you have a small business, right? Yes, we do. And I said, I think it's ridiculous. I mean, if, you know, we don't make that much money, but, you know, I think it's ridiculous that, that uh, talk about the middle class. We, that is the middle class. People like me that have a small business, we're the ones that need the, uh, the, the tax break because every extra dime that I have goes back into the business. Whether it's, you know, it's, I, I basically give money to b- several other small businesses just to improve my business. So that, and that's how it all works. Uh, so, I mean, is this, so you don't think this is going to help you out all that much, what you've seen so far with this corporate tax cut? Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's coming down some. It's not coming down to the extent that the corporate rate's coming. I mean, it'll be, you know, it'll be somewhat beneficial. You know, but I mean, I just, I just, like you said, I, it doesn't make any sense. Why are, why are they not, you know, extending that to the supposed middle class that they are really, you know, say that they're bent on helping? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. I, I would like that. an answer. I would like them to stop saying we're yeah. focused on the middle class, but oh yeah, the corporate tax rate's going down. Right. Can, do you mind if I just throw one thing in about the, the, all this sexual harassment? Yeah, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Because it's something that's really bothering me is that how is it that the supposed smartest people on earth that are basically affecting our daily lives, you know, to the extent that they are, how is it that those people have to go through mandatory anti-sexual harassment training? Wait, how is it that they they have to or they don't have to? Yeah, they just voted, you know, they just basically passed that. Oh, Congress. You're talking about Congress. I thought you meant Congress. the meet, like the yeah. Matt Lauer people. No. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, they'll, they'll go through it. It won't, that won't change anything, though. I mean, you look, everyone knows you, the stuff that people are guilty of here, the groping and everything, that's not a sexual harassment training issue. That's to oh, be a decent you know, human it's being. It's not going to change. It's not going to, no, it's not going to change anything, but I just find it humorous that these supposedly, you know, geniuses amongst us are having to take a class. Yeah, the, an, the answer to, the answer to some guys walking around getting naked in front of employees is let's have a class. I agree. Patty, shields high. Thank you. 
Um, Richard in Mississippi, I want to get you in. You got a, got a couple minutes because I know you disagree with me. Go ahead. Yeah, but uh, I disagree with you on the tax cut. Uh, Ronald Reagan, if you study history, he had two tax cuts in 1981 and 1986. He couldn't get the tax cut through in 1981 that he wanted, so he had to go back in 86. Now, these senators are not going to give tax cuts to small businesses like the lady just said. They're, you know, small businesses to carry them. So I'm all for cutting the corporate rate. I'm all for bringing that money back. I know it's going to make the economy boom. And as Ronald Reagan said, a rising tide lifts all boats. All right, Richard. Shield time, my friend. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Uh, I hope Richard's right. I hope Richard's. I really do. I I am rooting. I am rooting to be wrong on this one. I, mean, I should know. I don't think this is cataclysmic. I'm not saying the tax cut's going to be terrible or something. I just don't think it's going to have quite the effect that we're being told it will. And I think it might be problematic for the midterms when all these all these statements have been made about how much it's going to help the middle class. The Democrats are going to turn around and be like, "Yeah, how's how's it feeling, middle class?" Well, how was that? Uh, how was that refund check you got from the IRS? Look, looking a lot better because of what the Republicans did. The answer is going to be no. Uh, now we can turn around and be like, "Yeah, thanks for Obamacare, Democrats." I mean, there's a lot of counterpoint to this, but I'm just saying it's not. Look, at the end of the day, we all want our. Ta- I want tax cuts. I want to pay less in taxes. I want to have more money. I want to be able to support a family and and build a you know some life for myself where I'm not living paycheck to paycheck. But we also need to understand that at some point we can't have it both ways. We can't just have cuts, cuts, cuts and spend, spend, spend. And we are not touching spending. And we know this and no one wants to say it because it's like being a party pooper. But I am going to say it. We can't just have cuts without changing the way we spend the federal or the federal government spends our money. All right, we're going to get a D.C. insider to tell us about what's going on with this tax bill and also some uh, major shakeup that the White House may be about to engage in. We'll get to that and more. Stay with me. Do you want Rex Tillerson on the job, Mr. President? He's here. Rex is here. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. As we've said many times before, as uh, many of you love to write these type of stories, uh, when the president loses confidence in someone, they will no longer uh, serve in the capacity that they're in. The president was here today with the secretary of state. Uh, They engaged in a foreign leader visit and are continuing to work together uh, to close out what we've seen to be an incredible year. Cecilia. Can we deduce from that that the president has confidence in the Secretary of State? I think I addressed that pretty clearly just now. Is that a yes? As I just said, and as we've said many times before, when it comes to questions like this uh, of senior staff and cabinet secretaries, when the president loses confidence in somebody, they'll no longer be here. Uh, As the president said uh, on the record, and several of you were in the room in the Oval today, uh, the Secretary of State is here, and we're working hard to uh, get big things accomplished and close. Okay, so that was uh, the president to start out with there saying that Rex, which is that's a cool name. Uh, my name is Buck, but Rex is even cooler. Uh, Rex is here, which is kind of a, a statement, yes, but not a statement that tells us very much. And then you had Sarah Huckabee Sanders, White House press secretary, saying a, a lot of stuff that also not really clear what she was saying. Well, who can help us read 
the tea leaves. Ah, yes, Sarah Westwood is with us now. She is a White House correspondent for the Washington Examiner and very plugged in for all things D.C. Sarah, thanks for calling. Thanks for having me. Okay, so Rex Tillerson, is he getting the boot? Is he getting the switch? Tom Cotton, what's happening here? I think it's pretty clear that Rex Tillerson is not going to be a permanent fixture in the Trump administration. Just exactly how numbered his days are, though, is fairly unclear. We we know that President Trump is not entirely satisfied with Tillerson's performance that's been evident in the way that Trump has contradicted Tillerson publicly in the past, particularly when it comes to North Korea. The way that President Trump has defend has declined to wade in and defend Tillerson when things go south, when there are rumors that Trump has soured on Tillerson, when he is satisfied with a key cabinet member or White House aide, and those kind of rumors pop up and they're untrue, Trump tends to jump in. Remember, a little while ago, there were some rumors flying around about Chief of Staff John Kelly being on the outs. Trump actually tweeted about it, and he was very forceful in saying, this is totally false. I totally trust John Kelly. He's here for the long haul. We're not seeing him doing that in the case of Secretary of State Tillerson. I think there's a reason. It's because uh, the conventional wisdom holds that Tillerson was always going to dip out at the end of the year or the beginning of next year. Now, I've heard that there may be some some movement, though, right? So Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas may become CIA director and Pompeo may go from CIA to secretary of state. Is, is that what you're hearing? That is what the plan seems to be, although there have been a few other names thrown around potentially for CIA director that the replacement for Pompeo. I'm busy. You can tell them, Sarah, that I have a very nice radio job and I will not be able to uh, accept the CIA director position right now. But unfortunately, Buck Sexton at this time is not available. But certainly the CIA director position seems to be more up in the air than the secretary of state position. Should a vacancy occur by Tillerson being dismissed or leaving, it's pretty clear that Pompeo is the front runner for that position. Now, maybe Tom Cotton has been mentioned most frequently to take over for Pompeo at CIA, but there have been other names floated. It's not entirely clear that Cotton would even take that job, given that he is a pretty relatively new Republican senator. So it would be a kind of shuffle of high-profile names within the administration if Tillerson were to leave. Uh, but I, I guess I should clarify, it's not a matter of if it's really a matter of when Tillerson departs. And what are you hearing from your folks about why is Rex on the outs? Well, there are a few reasons. I think that President Trump and Secretary of State Tillerson were never quite ideologically simpatico. I think that Tillerson had a more moderate worldview, and the best demonstration of that would probably be what happened during negotiations over the JCPOA. Recall that in October, President Trump was faced with this deadline to either recertify or pull out of the Iran nuclear deal. And President Trump has been pretty vocal this entire time that he really wanted to remove himself from the deal. He promised it on the campaign trail. He's always said it was one of the worst demonstrations of the Obama administration's negotiation skills, and he really wanted out. But Tillerson was one of the aides who was advocating most forcefully inside the White House for staying in the nuclear deal. He argued that it would upset key U.S. allies if the administration were to pull out of the deal. And 
President Trump, uh, he wanted to hear options that didn't involve recertifying the nuclear deal. So I think that was one very prominent example of Tillerson's lack of clout uh, being exposed because Trump ended up doing the opposite of what Tillerson advocated. And uh, on a range of issues from the Paris deal on, uh, Tillerson and Trump have been at odds and they're just not a good fit professionally. We're speaking to Sarah Westwood and she's the White House correspondent for the Washington Examiner. You can go to WashingtonExaminer.com to read her latest. Sarah, what can you tell us about where things stand right now with this tax bill? When's the when's the soonest that they could have a vote in the Senate on this? Is it going to pass? What's going on? Well, the thinking is that the Senate could hopefully get this advanced by Friday or Monday morning, and then on Monday the House will reconvene to vote to move this into conference, which means that House Republicans and Senate Republicans will sit down together and iron out the differences in their bills. There's a, there's a few key differences between the Senate version and the House version, but at their core, they're similar enough that if this does get into conference, that there's a high degree of confidence among Republicans that this is going to become law if that happens. This is actually shaping up to be a best-case scenario for the White House. Every domino that needs to fall in place for the White House is already falling in place. So barring some unforeseen tragedy or some rogue member like John McCain during the health care vote, I think the, the White House is pretty confident that they have this in the bag. You think John McCain might be kind of loosey with the football on this one? Because as of today, he's saying he's in. But I could see John McCain at the last minute like, psych, spike in Trump's deal. <laughs> it's entirely possible. I mean, he was the vote that killed the repeal of Obamacare, and that was wholly unexpected even to leadership. So we don't know what Senator McCain is going to do, but he's indicating that he's on board for the Senate version of the bill. And it will be really interesting to watch this sort of arm wrestling tournament that we're going to see in conference about which version of the bill is going to prevail, because remember, there are some key aspects of the Senate bill uh, that are not present in the House bill, uh, most notably the repeal of the individual mandate in Obamacare that wasn't in the House version. That's something that the White House has said they want, but it's not a must-have, and it'll be interesting to see if things like that survive conference. All right. Uh, one, one last one for you, Sarah, real quick. Any Democrat defections to the Republican side on this bill that you can foresee? So far, we've seen none, and I think if the spending triggers the automatic cut to discretionary spending that might be baked in, in order to combat fears that the growth projections are too optimistic. I think if those remain in, we're not going to see any Democrats defect. Uh, if that stays out of the final plan, you just may see some of those red state Democrats come on board. Oh, yeah, and real quick, uh, the debt ceiling, they're going to raise it, right? Like, no no question. <laughs> I think that's a no question, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, they, they like to give some fun speeches before, but they're going to raise it. All right, everybody, Sarah Westwood doing a great job down there in D.C. She uh, is at the Washington Examiner. Check it out. Sarah, thank you so much. Great to have you as always. Thank you. So, team, when we come back, I want to talk to you about something that has gotten a bit lost in the shuffle over taxes and policy. And I've mentioned fertility before on the show, declining fertility, particularly male fertility in America and how it is a silent epidemic. And it's one of those things people don't want to talk about. Well, now we also have the numbers for 2017, and we are in the midst of what is being called a great baby bust. People are not having babies. And there is at least one part of this tax reform 
that could have directly tried to, in small measure, address address that issue of a baby bust. If demographics are destiny, if it really is essential for this country, if this country is going to be made great again, doesn't it have to propagate itself? Don't we have to perpetuate the American state with Americans? This is a question that I will get into right after this break. I think uh, you'll, you'll definitely want to stay around for that. We'll also get into some thoughts on North Korea and, because we always love to hear from you, we'll close out the show with a phenomenal Team Buck Speaks. So stay with me. I know that there's a lot of focus on the stock market, which has reached an all-time high, uh, and people are worried about a correction, maybe even a crash. I want to tell you about a different kind of crash that's happening right now. A fertility crash in this country. I've spoken to you before about declining fertility rates and how they have profound societal impacts. Uh, just look at what's going on in a place like Japan, for example, where you have such a, a bulge demographically of the of the elderly and what that means to the economy, just to the social and cultural dynamism of a place. Uh, it is aging out in a sense. And we usually don't worry as much about it here because we've been doing pretty well, not well by third world or developing country standards when it comes to fertility. But Americans, until recently, were still having lots of kids or having enough kids to replace themselves. That's changing and it's changing very rapidly. In fact, we are now below replacement level. And there is some data to show that we are at the lowest fertility, uh, demographically speaking, we're at the lowest fertility level since the 1920s. And that has really serious implications for the future of this country. People don't talk about this that much, but just think about it. What happens, you know, we have this whole fancy, great society and welfare state and all this stuff. And a lot of a lot of Social Security payments due, a lot of Medicare, a lot of Medicaid. Who's going to who are going to be the workers for all of this? You've been looking at this for some time. This has been a, a reality that people have been aware of. But what exactly are we going to do when instead of having you know seven workers for every retiree, we have two? It just means massive tax increases and, and statism and, a, and a, an economy that is crawling if forward, if not in some state of collapse. And I, I have to give some credit to the New York Times uh, conservative op-ed columnist, Ross Douthit, who went on a, a rant last night on Twitter that I want to share with you. Um, Douthit, look, he's a very good writer. He's, he writes for the New York Times, so he's got to play by some of their rules, and I understand that. I've, I met Ross once a very long time ago. Uh, before he was even working at the New York Times. I think he was at the Atlantic at the time. But Ross goes into some analysis that I think we all need to think about. And it has to do with two things, not just this fertility plunge, which many of you may be saying. And there's also a scientific issue here with male fertility. I'm not talking about demographically now. I'm just talking about on an individual fertility on a per capita basis is also dramatically declining. It is harder even for men who want to have babies in America to have them than it used to be. And nobody really has any answers about this. I'm not trying to be alarmist, but 
People are saying, you know, maybe carrying a cell phone in your pocket, the radiation from it. I, I don't know. I don't know. No, but, but nobody knows. But we do know that it's a lot harder for American uh, males who want to have children to have them now than it was in the past. I have some, some theories, some biomedical theories about this, but not refined enough or in, in enough expertise, based enough expertise to share on the show, but uh, I, I have some theories. Anyway, Ross, in his rant... And it was well-timed because we're talking about taxes. And, and I, look, I know there's a lot of enthusiasm right now for, yay, Republicans, going to get this done, it seems like, although I'm still skeptical. I try not to be the conservative Eeyore here on the show, you know, just never think anything is going to be, never think anything is going to be delivered by the Republicans. I, I don't want to be, I try to draw a line between being naive or, or reach that middle ground between being naive and being overly pessimistic about GOP capabilities. But Ross talks about fertility and also how to, how the tax code and this whole tax debate is skipping over this very important issue. And let me just read to you from, this was from uh, Ross Douthat's Twitter account, New York Times conservative columnist. And, and these are his words, not mine. He makes some interesting points here. He calls some people out. I'm not calling them out. I'm quoting Ross, but I want to I get into the meat of this argument with you. This is, this is important stuff. This really matters. This, this is long-term health of America policy. And it gets pushed aside. All right, here's what he writes. Quote, there's a sort of populist conservative that lo- likes to talk a lot about civilizational struggles demographic suicide, and the idea that Islam owns the future because Western nations don't have any babies. I'm thinking about all sorts of people here, everyone from Mark Stein to the Breitbart crowd to Pat Buchanan to Steve King in Iowa and many more. This group has generally been one of Donald Trump's key cheering sections. For them, a vote for Trump was a vote against Western decadence a vote against a globalist, corporate-dominated GOP, and a liberalism ready for dimitude, which is a subjugated status that Christians and Jews live in under an Islamic caliphate. Uh, That's my addition there. He didn't write that. Anyway, Ross goes on. Okay, well, guess what? We're in the middle of a major baby bust in the United States of America right now. Exactly the sort of thing these guys are always warning about. You can't save your own civilization with other people's babies, that sort of thing. And then he lists this piece that goes into the great baby bust of 2017. People just aren't having kids right now. And with the stock market at an all-time high and all these economic metrics that are supposed to show that things are going really well in this country, why aren't people having kids? And I know I sit here unmarried and without children, but I'm working on it, everybody. The, pl- the plan is to get married soon and get have kids soon. So I'm working on it. By New York City standards, I'm, I'm pretty much on schedule. We, we get married late here and have kids late here, which I should note, people don't like to say this, but you know, I'm, calling my, I'm, I'm saying it myself, male or female, as you get older, it's harder to have kids, meaning it's actually physiologically more difficult to have a child, to get pregnant and have a child. So that's a part of this as well. We're all pushing back because of career and other expectations, having kids. 
And when I say we, I know many of you haven't, but I'm just America in general. That's what's going on here. So there's a baby bust right now, the opposite of a baby boom going on in this country. Back to Mr. Douthit's rant here. Quote, in the midst of this baby bust, the Republican Party is having a debate about whether its tax plan should take just a pinch of the money that it's devoting to tax cuts for globalists uh, or sorry, corporations and spend it instead on families with kids. The proposed tax credit is linked to having a job. It's specifically designed to satisfy conservative concerns about subsidizing dependency, welfare mothers, illegal immigrants, etc. Lots and lots of its beneficiaries live in Trump country. It's not going to end the baby bust. It's not big enough to have some major effect on birth rates. But it is something. It's a conservative policy that's actually mildly responsive to the trends all these folks freaking out about the twilight of the West claim to care about. And guess what? Their great champion, their idiot's version of Constantine or whomever, came out against expanding it today because he doesn't want to take away money from his huge tax cut for the globalist types that all these guys claim to be against. And naturally, if you go to Mark Stein's feed or Steve King's feed or the homepage of Breitbart.com, you'll found you'll find lots of outrage about this because globalists are bad and demography is destiny and the family is the cradle. Oh, wait, there's nothing like that at all. They don't care about this. It isn't a video of a Muslim doing something bad or a Hollywood sex scandal or a stupid left wing academic saying something stupid. It's just a pro-natalist policy in the middle of a baby bust. And who would care about that? All these other populists who presume to lecture the rest of us on how we're just surrendering to liberalism and refusing to charge the cockpit and blah, blah, blah. Total crap. What crap? End quote. Now, let's let's all be honest here. Uh, a, a bit of, a bit of uh, tough love for our side. We are in the midst of a baby bust. The numbers, you can look at them for yourself. The numbers are in. We are not replacing ourselves as a society. And then you get into, well, we are also engaged in bringing in a million people each year and giving them permanent residency or citizenship. And yes, we can talk about assimilation and that process, but it's supposed to be a part of a much larger Polity, right? You're, you're, not, you're not supposed to be relying on immigration for the replacement of your own society. That's that was not the idea of our immigration policies. But when you look at a, a situation now where and you'll notice I haven't spoken about any specific uh, any specific group here, any specific uh, ethnicity. I'm talking about Americans across the board, every race, creed, religion. We are not having enough babies and we have a tax code that is still being used for all kinds of little goodies. And I know, you know, the Republicans, I've been telling you about this. And I know right now it's popular to just cheer for the, because people associate, okay, Republicans doing something, Trump agenda, good for Trump, good for America. I understand that impulse. But let's not lose sight of what really also matters to our side. And we are supposed to be, um, the, the Republicans are supposed to be conservatism is rooted in the family. 
in having babies, in being pro-life and pro-family. And if we're going to have a tax code that's creating little goodies and carve-outs for businesses here and this over there, wouldn't a tax credit for that that all it does is help people who are having kids pay their bills? There's a work requirement. It's not welfare. But if you have kids and you're, you have, you know, you're employed, this gives you some relief and maybe encourages people to have babies who are waiting. And I know what this is like because having a kid in New York City, you know what the first thing people say to you is when they're your friends after they say congratulations when, you know, your, your, your wife is pregnant or whatever. They go, wow, kids are expensive. Because if you don't want to live at the whim of the state, if you don't want the state to be providing for your family, if you choose to provide for it for yourself in a major urban part of this country or probably any part of this country, depends on how expensive uh, how expensive it is to to live and to support yourself. But it is really hard. It is very difficult. And if you want to pay your own bills and be in charge of your own destiny and be you know male or female, be the breadwinner for your family or both. You know, husband and wife, be the breadwinners for the family. It's hard. So while we're all focused on the tax cut for corporations, I do think that somehow it got lost in the sauce here that there was a way to encourage Americans who are paying their own bills to have kids, which is necessary if we want this country's bills to be paid in the future, and also to force a discussion about the replacement of our society with more people who support the ideals of this country. Uh, we've missed an opportunity here. And, and I think it's, I think it's indicative of a little bit of a, you know, my team versus your team mentality that has become corrosive. It's needed at a certain level, but we have to keep it also in a context, in a framework. We need Americans to have more babies. I need to have some babies. I got work to do here. But at a policy level, this should be something that the Republican Party is standing behind, and they have been very, very deafeningly silent on it. Tax cuts for corporations, yay. What about tax cuts so people will have kids? Just wanted to share that with you. I I think this is something we'll be returning to because the fertility drop is going to continue. I think it'll be even worse next year. All right, with that, we'll be right back. So, yeah, I'll be in uh, New Orleans, um, which I'll be talking about again later on in the show. But here, here is where I request that if any of you have any really great uh, New Orleans insights, uh, favorite bar, favorite restaurant, stuff that I should go check out. Molly really wants to do the, the, as much of the cultural side of New Orleans. Miss Molly wants to do as much of the cultural side of New Orleans as we can in the, in the days that we're down there. But... I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I, I want to check it out. And I was thinking about how I'll be down there for action movie, quote, Friday. And the only action movie that I that comes to mind off the top of my head from Nor- from New Orleans is called Hard Target with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, who in in that movie. So he has his, his usual he's Belgian, but he has that French Belgian accent and he is like a tough guy who works on the docks but also happens to be really good at karate and has a mullet as one does and he is brought into a a human hunting ring uh, 
somehow. Oh, because his friend is one of the is one of the subjects who is hunted. Lance Henriksen, who's actually a pretty good actor and some other stuff, he's in it. I mean, it's a really bad movie. But I was thinking about this. That's the oh, I, I can't think of another action movie. That's the first movie that came to my my mind about uh, New Orleans when it comes to action movies. So uh, there's also. But that's more, I was going to say, there's the first season of True Detective, but that's Louisiana-based. That's not New Orleans. I think it's not New Orleans at all. And I don't know where, True Blood is, I think, also supposed to be ta- the HBO show, which goes, like, way off the deep end after a while. Um, but True Blood is supposed to take place somewhere in, in Louisiana. But so I really have, I've just read about it. It's not one of these places where I have a... Uh, a particular conception of what it will be before I get there because I haven't really been exposed to that much of it. You know, I always thought that one of the great compliments that Orwell had, you know, Orwell had, uh, and I'll talk to you more about this, I think tomorrow, because uh, I've been reading up on my Orwell lately, one of the most important authors in the English language, uh, was that Soviet dissidents would pass around 1984 and an animal farm. And they would say, how does he understand what's going on with communism and the Soviet Union so well? He's never been to Russia. So it is possible to have an understanding of a place before you go. All I know about New Orleans is the food's amazing, the people are really nice, and it's supposed to be really cool and fun. So I'm, I'm very excited. But I just had to laugh because in, uh, in Hard Target, there's a scene where Jean-Claude Van Damme, his, like, his quintessential action movie quote is, my name is Chance, my mama took one. That's his. That's his whole thing. And then he's just running around doing a lot of a lot of spin kicks. Uh, I was younger then. I didn't realize that a spin kick is generally a pretty ineffective way to you know, deal with somebody in a street fight. Y- you miss a spin. First, I mean, if I try to spin kick now, I'd probably pull a hammy. Spin kicks are not the way you want to go. But um, I'm looking forward to having a whole vision of. I don't even. I don't even have a vision in my mind of what New Orleans. I've never been for Mardi Gras. I've never been for anything. Don't even have a vision in my mind of what it's like. So uh, it'll be a lot of fun. It'll be really fun to check it out. And uh, this is also where you can suggest if you think a if you think we have a core team buck group somewhere in the country and it's worth me maybe coming out and doing a visit. We might do some kind of an event. Facebook.com slash Bucksex and hoping to get out to Austin early on in 2018. See some of you fine folks in the Austin area uh, looking for an excuse to get down to uh, Nashville. I got to get out to Ohio. Want to get out to Indiana. I got a bunch of things planned. But uh, I'm open to suggestions, and I'll let you know about New Orleans. I'll be right back. You are now entering the Freedom Hut Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. A lot of focus on North Korea this week because of its latest ICBM, the uh, the. ICBM that went further than any other that we have uh, seen from North Korea. We talked about it yesterday with our friend Rebecca Heinrich, who's a missile expert. I just wanted to speak to you a bit because I I didn't have the time yesterday, a bit more about what I think is going to happen here. Um, I wrote a piece on the Hill, get ready for a North Korea that can fire nukes anywhere, because I think we're heading to a place where we will have to, when I say accept, it doesn't mean we'll be okay with it. Maybe a better way to pu- put it would be to defend ourselves against. But we will find ourselves in a position where we'll have to uh, 
figure out a way to live with a North Korean regime that does have the ability to fire nuclear-capable ICBMs pretty much anywhere. Here's why I think that the latest round of, oh, we're going to do something about this that will stop them is, is likely to fail. Uh, and as a quick aside before I get into that, I have been telling you, those who listen to this show, from the beginning of the show, back in February, uh, from the beginning of the Buck Saxton show, I've been telling you that our, our new policy in Afghanistan is not new and will not work. And recently, you've had a general come out uh, who's the commanding general in Afghanistan and say that it's a, it's a, new, a whole new game with the Trump approach. And some have pointed out that many generals previously in Afghanistan have had essentially the same thing to say. And I understand there's a can-do attitude for someone at the very top of the command chain, whether we're talking about military or civilian leadership in the White House. You don't want to give people a mission and say, it's very unlikely you're going to be successful, but we're going to try anyway. I get that. But we also have to be honest about whether we're really trying a new strategy or a strategy that we think will just get it right this time. And with North Korea, we are relying on get it right this time. There will be increased sanctions, sure. But we recently got a round of more punishing sanctions against North Korea that resulted in, well, not a cessation of missile testing, but just a delay. So we've, we, we ratchet up the pressure and the response is even greater, not just provocation, but progress in the North Korean nuclear missile program. They have an end goal here. This is not people keep referring to it as saber rattling, but saber rattling is something you do just for that effect. Oh, you know, I've got a sword here and, you know, you better watch out. The North Koreans aren't just trying to create uh, instability and anxiety in the international community. They've got a goal in mind. They want to be able to miniaturize a nuclear warhead, put it on top of an ICBM, and then be able to fire it anywhere in the world. And I should note that this is where we're going to, this is what we're heading towards, and it's imminent. I mean, this is a matter of maybe a few years, possibly months. Some say that they already can do most, if not all, of this. I would also note that I don't know what the mechanism is for us to truly believe or to be certain that they can do this. I'm not sure what the day, you know, how we come to that point where we go, okay, well, now North Korea has crossed the threshold. Some have said that they might test a nuclear, a thermonuclear device over the Pacific Ocean somewhere. Okay, that would be maybe even a red line that we wouldn't accept. I don't know what that would mean. What does not accept mean? We've been told for 20 years that we would not accept a North Korea that has the ability to threaten the U.S. homeland with nuclear weapons. And here we are. Here we are with North Korea closer than ever. And the options we're talking about, oh, Chinese pressure, and that's been the option. These have been the tools at our disposal all along. North Korea is... The ultimate pariah state, it is already very sanctioned, very cut off from international finance. 
but they have raw materials. They have some things that they export and there will always be black market activity. There will always be cyber hacking for profit in the case of a country like North Korea. That's a rogue state. They really don't care if the FBI gets annoyed or some or Interpol or some other international police organization. If they're found out trying to hack into banks or steal bitcoins or any number of different you can you if you look this up, you'll see the news reports. North Korea is trying to find ways to enrich itself by acting as a criminal enterprise. So we keep thinking, OK, we're going to bring them to the table for negotiations or at least ratchet down tensions by approaching North Korea as a problem set the way we would another country. But so many of the important mechanisms that would be in place with other countries aren't in North Korea. There's no internal pressure on the Kim regime. Kim doesn't care how much suffering his people endure. Millions of people in North Korea already endure a state of quasi-starvation. There are prisoner camps, concentration camps that operate right now in North Korea, vast ones. What do we think the international community's pressure campaign is really going to accomplish? If you look at this from the perspective of Kim... There is no future in which he is welcomed back into the community of nations with open arms. It's never going to happen. And there's also no future for Kim in which he backs down from his hyper-militaristic posture and is able to maintain power. And one thing that we know from these kinds of despotisms, which North Korea is in a class by itself, but when there's a transfer of power... It is most often because of somebody who's in the inner circle of power around the despot. So that's one. It's usually a a palace coup of one kind or another. But we also know that the the leader can be executed. His whole family might be executed. So he's got a lot on the line here. He backs down from his brinksmanship. Kim Jong-un backs down from his brinksmanship with America, with South Korea, with the international community. And... He may lose everything, and he doesn't care what he has to do to stay in power, obviously. I mean, he's been largely brainwashed into believing a lot of his own internal propaganda. How much of it does he, be- does, does he believe? We don't know. We can never really know. But Chinese leverage, as I've explained to you, is not what we are led to believe it is based on the way the news talks about it. Oh, you know, if we just, you know, if we just get China to play ball, what do you think China's really going to do? They're going to cut them off economically. I mean, if North Korea is truly cut off economically, it will implode, right? Are we going to allow for a starvation of North, for further starvation of North Korea? Look at what the Saudis are doing with Yemen right now and the outcry over that. You've got millions of Yemenis who face starvation because of a Saudi blockade. We're going to try a blockade with North Korea. I should note, if we try to blockade with North Korea, they may decide, you know what? This is it. That's all. That's their red line. And... They turn Seoul into a sea of fire in South Korea, as they've been threatening to do for a very long time. Pakistan has nuclear weapons. India has nuclear weapons. India is a a multi-confessional democracy and an ally of ours. Pakistan is kind of a frenemy, but there are countries that have nukes that weren't supposed to get them, and we've learned to deal with it. If the choice is, and I'm really putting this to you now because this is what we face, if the choices are find a way to counter North Korean nukes effectively 
so that they're not a they're not an, an imminent threat to us or any of our allies, or risk a full scale war where millions of people could and would likely would die on the Korean Peninsula. Which choice are we going to go for? I know, based on what the administration's saying right now, it sounds like option B, if pushed to it. But I think that would be a, I think that would be a mistake. Um, I think that there are ways to box in North Korean imminent military aggression. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff they're going to do, proliferation, cyber activity, criminal enterprise, support for insurgencies and terrorism. It's going to be a mess no matter what. I mean, this is this is we're we're dealing with a nightmare in North Korea. But we do want to avoid everything. We want to avoid a war with North Korea to, to whatever degree we can. There is no such thing as a quick precision strike that deals with the North Korean threat that does not involve at least the retaliation that would be devastating to South Korea and who knows who else. All right, we're going to get into some Team Buck Speaks here in just a moment. Stay with me. All right, team, it's time for Team Buck Speaks. Remember, if you want to get in on this action, you can write to us at official Team Buck. That's official Team Buck at gmail.com and also facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Uh, let's get into it. We have Martin writing in with a lengthy email. Hey, Buck, I wanted to write because I disagree with you on big game hunting. Full disclosure, I have not hunted in Africa, but my understanding is that as a trophy hunter, you purchase a permit from the government and then hire a guide company for the hunt. So the argument that a corrupt government takes the money and it doesn't get redistributed to the people shouldn't dissuade hunters because there's a lot more money and effort involved than just the permit. Guide companies employ people and provide their customers with food, transportation, etc., which all impacts the local economy. Also, trophy hunting does not waste the meat. I think this is a key to the argument that people don't understand. In most cases, whether it is elephant, lion, or even giraffe, once the animals are killed, locals harvest the meat and everything else that is useful. Regarding big game hunting in North America, moose, elk, deer, turkey, and even bear all taste great when properly prepared. They are a challenge to hunt, and I have yet to meet a hunter who doesn't harvest the meat, either for themselves, friends and family, or they donate excess meat to organizations that help families in need or homeless shelters. When I hunt, my goal is to fill the freezer with food. However, I also try to harvest mature animals as a management strategy, allowing younger animals an opportunity to thrive. I think part of the problem with our generation when it comes to hunting is that TV and movies have anthropomorphized animals, and we relate those characters to what we see in nature. My wife is an excellent example. She thinks of Bambi's dad when she sees a large mature deer and doesn't want to pull the trigger, but she will eat the meat after I harvest an animal so we don't let things go to waste. Shields high, Martin. Okay, Martin, so a couple things here. First of all, thank you for the very thoughtful and, uh, and precise email. Uh, I have no problem at all with deer hunting or any of the hunting that is, is commonplace in uh, here in America and North America. I certainly have no problem with hunting for food uh, of any kind. I'm a very devoted meat eater and have done some hunting myself. So just so we're all on the same page there. My my only question has to do 
with big game or I'm sorry, not big trophy hunting in Africa specifically. And there, there are a few levels that it just doesn't really make all that much sense to me. I'm aware of the economic arguments in favor of it, and I'm, I did not know that it is commonplace, and I would want to check into this, or, or that it is expected that any meat from any animal will be given to the locals. I certainly hope that would be the case. Uh, but for me, it's just more a question of why is it fun to kill an elephant? I don't understand that. Uh, I have an appreciation for animals and nature, And look, I'm not condemning it. I just can't bring myself to see where the sport and where the joy is in killing an animal, particularly that is uh, disappearing. You know, I mean, to go for animals that are uh, very limited in terms of population, that's not the case with deer. I mean, I've spent plenty of time in all over the country where, you know, your, your problem you have to deal with is whether a deer is going to hit your car or, you know, there's deer in your front yard or deer get overpopulated and starved to death. Elephants, endangered or recently threatened or endangered species, it feels a little different to me. But like I said, still learning about this, still have to understand more. I just can't understand yet the thrill of wanting to kill a large and majestic animal. Uh, I don't get it. But that doesn't mean that it's wrong, per se. All right. Seth writes in with the following. Buck, I love the show. I've been listening by podcast for a few years since I first heard you when you were filling in for Rush Limbaugh. Your impressions and voices always crack me up. Your Hillary is spot on at captioning her essence. Thank you. And I was sure it was your best one. That all changed when I heard your Brian Williams impression last week. Your Brian Williams may just be your magnum opus. I had to pause the podcast. I was laughing so hard and then had to rewind it and listen to it again and do it all over. You should do a mock segment with Brian Williams leading a panel discussion with Commie Bear, Hillary, and David Gergen. That's David Gergen on Russian election hacking. Keep up the great work. By the way, we need more Commie Bear. I've already got the T-shirt. Shields high. Seth. Well, Seth, thank you for the very kind email. And let me say uh, that I've I've been planning a commie bear reboot for a while, and I know I've been talking about it. Keep in mind, we've only been here with Premier Networks on the new show for, gosh, nine months, maybe going on 10 months now. Uh, we, in 2018, starting in January, are going to have a whole rollout of updated, refreshed, and in some cases, rebranded aspects of this show. So those of you who like the show so far, but feel like there are some parts of it from the old show, the Buck Sexton show, that you'd like to see uh, more a, a regular part of what we're doing here in the Freedom Hut, it's all coming. It is in motion. It is happening. Uh, we are working on it. We are committed to it. And Commie Bear will be a part of of that whole effort. So, uh, as well as more uh, produced history segments. But if you want to hear those, like I've been saying, you got to download the podcast. And uh, that means subscribe now to the podcast. If you have iTunes, uh, there's a bunch of different places you can listen to it. iTunes is a great one. Um, You can subscribe and then it just appears every time you refresh your podcasts, uh, the latest one will appear. So you'll get this show and also eventually you'll get the 
history podcasts. And as I've been saying, the holidays is a great time to pass along word to friends and family about this show. Uh, the team has grown from a, a, a small but devoted, loyal and wonderful tribe of, uh, of fellow patriots in the earliest days of the Saturday three-hour Buck Sexton extravaganza to now a nationally syndicated show on over 120 stations uh, in major markets across the country and with a rapidly growing digital audience. That is all because of you, uh, my wonderful and supportive and brilliant audience. So thank you so very much. Uh, tomorrow, I am going down to New Orleans or New Orleans, as New Yorkers tend to say. Very much looking forward to it. It will be my first time down there in the Big Easy. Uh, Miss Molly used to live there, and I promised for her birthday that I would take her back. And we're really excited to eat all the food they have down there and go check out some stuff. I'm going to try to sneak her with me over to the World War II Museum. We've got a lot of stuff planned. So I'll be with you all tomorrow live from New Orleans and on WRNO down there. If you're in the New Orleans area, tweet at me. Tell me some good restaurants and some local tips, please. And uh, until tomorrow, Shields High.